0: So today's episode 148 of the Jimmy'sTable.com podcast, and I'm going to talk about an uncertain faith. You heard me right, an uncertain faith. And that may not sit so well with you to talk about the idea of a certain faith, because when we think of faith, we think of people who are very certain about things. But I want to read this passage to you from the scriptures as so- something of a backdrop that I'm going to kind of interweave into today's discussion about Wally. Why, I believe we ultimately need a faith that's a little less certain. Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, a little backdrop. Children of Israel have been in bondage for over 400 years, living under the oppression and slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. And God has heard their cries and their groans. And he summons Moses out in the wilderness after Moses sees a burning bush that he to see and wonders why this bush burns but is not consumed. And when Moses turns aside to see this burning bush, he has an encounter with the Lord who speaks to him from this bush. And in this conversation, God calls Moses to go be a deliverer to the people of Israel, to to help free the Hebrew people from the slavery and the yoke of Pharaoh, and to to bring them out to the promised land Um, and to deliver them from the bondage and oppression that they have known. And in this conversation in Exodus verse, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, God says to Moses, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And I think there's a little irony in this, this this little exchange here, because Moses is before the Lord and asking, Lord, what's going to be the sign that it's you that who is with me? How am I going to know that this has been you um, that has sent me to go deliver? Uh, the people of God from Pharaoh in Egypt. And God says with a certain sense of irony, Certainly I shall be with you, and this shall be a sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Well, if you sit there and think about that and digest that, that's not a lot of certainty that God's actually giving to Moses here. He's saying, yes, certainly this is going to be the sign. This is going to be the sign, Moses, that I am with you, that I have called you to this Herculean task to deliver the people of God from bondage out of Egypt under Pharaoh. The sign that this is, this is going to be the sign that this is me is the end result. <laughs> the certainty that you're seeking is going to be when you have brought the people out of Egypt and worship God at this mountain. That's how you're going to know. And it's kind of a weird answer to give Moses because, you know, Moses is looking for a sign in the here and now. He's looking for a sign of certainty before he begins his journey. And the only certainty that God offers Moses is the end result. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if I were to be summoned by God and to say, well, God, what's going to be the sign that you're with me before I go do this amazing task, before I go stand before a dictator who has enslaved my people, before I go put my neck on the line and approach this, this king who, who, who rules with an iron fist over the people of God, what's going to be the sign that I need, I can approach him? I'm going to want something a little bit more assuring, than God simply promising me the end result. I, I, I sense in this, this sign that God offers to Moses, it's, it's a little less certain. God is inviting Moses, rather, to have a little bit of faith. Faith in the end result and not the assurance of things as certain as we would like them to be. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. At the end of the day, when it comes to our faith, our faith is kind of a future-oriented thing. It's an assurance of things that are hoped for, things that are yet to come, things that have yet to materialize in our world in the present. Faith holds on to things that we can yet see. But when you're asking God for signs, when you're asking God for assurance, when you're asking God to prove himself, you want to see that proof before you start your journey. That's not how God operates. That's not how faith operates. I, I can remember when I was a young man and I was struggling with my faith and I wanted proof of the existence of God. I was doing all these sort of mental tricks um, that weren't quite so philosophical in their nature. When I wanted to, to have this assurance that God was real, you know, I was asking God for signs. I was like, God, if you're really real, as I lay here on my bed, I want to see you do something magical. God, if, if you're really there, you should be able to do something so simple as turn the light switch on and off in my bedroom, right? A small little miracle, a small little assurance, a a small little thing that I can verify before I start my journey with you, before I'm sure that I can throw in my hat in the ring with you and to follow you. And guess what? No light switch ever turning on and off. And you may say that's ipso facto proof that maybe, hey, maybe God doesn't exist. But, uh, you know, I think that I was going about it in retrospect, all wrong. And I think that's why when you read the Gospels, you see this constant test that Jesus has with the Pharisees where they're asking him constantly for signs and wonders of, of proof, like, hey, Jesus, let's see a magic trick to prove that you, who, that you are who you say you are. Let's see you do something. You should be able to prophesy it, and we should be able to objectively verify it before it happens. And once we have that, then we'll believe you. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the religious rulers of his day is a, a wicked people seek for the signs and wonders. And he said, the only sign that's going to be given to this generation, Jesus told them, is the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was in the belly of a well for three days, so 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 shall the Son of Man be. And Jesus' only proof is that he was going to offer them was, the only way you're going to know who I say I am is by my death and resurrection. Well, that's, that's not a very good sign and proof of anything, Jesus. We, we want to see the magic trick in the here and now. So, so do some sort of wonder. Do some sort of sign before our eyes. Do something amazing so we can sit there and believe. So that we can sit there and have the conviction, the certainty that you are who you say you are as the Son of God. You know, one of the great sayings that I've heard over the years is that the enemy of faith is not unbelief, but certainty. We want to know that we know that we know that we know that we know before we believe. But Christianity actually teaches us the only way to know is to believe first, and then you'll understand. And this was something that St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, back in the 400s had said believe so that you may understand. And that's something we often try to do the opposite of, we try to understand everything so that therefore we can believe. And this is a very sort of enlightenment view of the world that we that we kind of possess. We want to see all the evidence. We want to see the math. We want to see the formula. We want to see how it works out on paper. And once we have that understanding within our grasp, within our understanding, with our mind, we can grasp it all. Then we say we will believe because we've done the math and it all makes sense and it all adds up. So therefore, I'll believe. When in truth... The way of faith, the way of Jesus, the way of following the Lord starts with faith first, and then comes the understanding. It's with faith that you go approach Pharaoh in hopes that after you've approached Pharaoh that you're going to end up at the mountain that God promised you. But that's not the way we do things, is it? If you reflect on church history, if, if you reflect on how we often do things, uh, you, you see how we're not very comfortable as Christians with the uncertainty that comes with faith. There's, there's always this sense that we want a, a certainty over the uncertainty. And you see this with, with Catholicism, for example. Catholicism through the sacraments, the seven sacraments of the church through the rites and passages that it it practices through the the performance of the priesthood sought to bring a certainty to people through those sacraments well we we know you can have salvation because we are the officially duly apostolically appointed priesthood of of Jesus and the apostles, they they appointed us so you can trust our institution. And as a result of the institution, you know that if you receive these seven sacraments, you can have the assurance of your salvation. (laughs) That you can have the assurance that you're on the right side of God because we're the official representatives of God. And because we can objectively sit here and say that you received these seven sacraments, therefore you're good. The Catholic Church thought To bring certainty to its parishioners and to its followers that they had the magic. And as a result of the magic rites that they could perform, you could have the assurance that everything was okay. But you know, we had the Protestant Reformation and the Protestants actually weren't much better. The the Protestants sought to bring a certainty to the exact wording of the gospel. They, they wanted to have the justification by faith thing nailed down perfectly. They wanted you to know it was by grace through faith you have been saved, not of works lest you, you know, <laughs> you know, that it was entirely of God and, and that if you believe this, this sola fide, this, this by faith alone doctrine, well, then you could be assured that you were in the right camp. And you know, as evangelicals, We've been happy to pair at both camps, I think. We're happy to have the liturgy and the theology at the end of the day that gives us assurance that everything about us and what we're doing is okay. And don't get me wrong, I think liturgy and theology are fine things and things we should give great attention to. But I think we've made an error and we've brought this sense of mechanical exactitude to the gospel. And we always want to reduce the gospel down to this magical formula, whether it's through the sacraments of the Catholic Church or the doctrine of justification by faith and penal substitutionary atonement through the Protestant Reformation. We we want to reduce everything to a magical formula. And I think you'll often hear this, especially at the the high liturgical points of the calendar of the Christian faith, whether you're Catholic, uh, old school, high church, Protestant, or evangelical. You see, especially coming out of the Easter season, you probably heard a lot of sermons that were rather exacting in their presentation of the gospel message that ultimately boiled down the gospel and what the church was about to this formula, this, this magical incantation that if the priest performs the rites passagely or the pastor says all the theologically correct words, he can be assured that he preached the gospel faithfully and exactly. Or that if you just believe in this way, you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. And you know I'm here to say today with this podcast I believe we need a faith that is a little less mathematical. We need a, a faith that is a little less formulaic and a little less certain. We need a faith that doesn't need to get the exact decimal point of the calculation right, but rather that is more than happy to round the nearest whole number. When the rich man asked Jesus what must he do to be saved, You know, I've always been curious about this. Jesus didn't give him an answer that would pass the smell test in any seminary that I know of. (laughs) And I've been to Bible college and seminary, so I think I know a thing or two about what they want to hear you say. When the rich man asked Jesus what he must do to be saved, Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Well, that doesn't pass your Catholic Church sacrament test, and that doesn't pass your Protestant Reformation um, justification by faith in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't read this rich young ruler, the Romans Road or four spiritual laws. Rather, he simply felt the pulse of where this man was spiritually and gave a direct response to what this man ultimately needed to hear. Jesus, when he presented the gospel, when the apostles, when they presented the gospel, didn't simply have this cute formula that we've reduced the gospel down to. And one would be hard-pressed, I think, to reduce what Jesus taught or the apostles taught To an easy formula that we could easily tell someone in some sort of mechanical fashion. As if the gospel were no different than the workings of a clock. Whose mechanics we can simply understand and digest and break down into a a precise formula to explain how this clock ticks. This enlightenment sense of understanding of the world in which we think we can understand the world in all of its grandeur by simply reducing it to formulas that explain why the sun rises and sets every day, why gravity holds us on the planet, why humanity has grown over certain millions or billions of years, to, to reduce everything to magical formulas that we can understand the world by. We, we did this with the Enlightenment and we, we do this with our faith. We try to reduce everything to this magical formula that gives us an, a, a certainty about the way the world works, about how faith works, how about how God works. And you know, at the end of the day, I believe a faith that's always so certain, the faith that's always trying to reduce everything to formulas and everything that's just an easy mem- uh, easy script that you can memorize and simply pair it to others I don't think that faith is going to do you a lot of good. Especially when you're forced to live through the fog of uncertain times. As Mike Tyson likes to say, (laughs) if I can quote the great theologian Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think that's going to happen with our life. And if, if we've reduced the Bible and our faith into this this rigid, formulaic sort of thing, this thing that we can be certain on every aspect of every jot, every tittle of everything that we ever say. I think when you live long enough to face the uncertainty of life and the trials of life and the tribulations of life, you're going to find that that mechanical faith, this faith that's reduced to a formula, It's not going to hold up very well. No wonder American church attendance is down. According to a recent uh, poll, a recent survey, a recent study, it's now down below 50%. You can find a link to this at the jimmystable.com podcast notes for the show notes. Attendance now for church or religious attendance in America is now down below 50%. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for this. Some of those reasons may be good. Some may be not so good. But I can't help but wonder if our need as the church to constantly fit Jesus into this neatly defined box, this mechanical Jesus, this formulaic Jesus, this Jesus who gives us, whose faith we have exact certitude over, I can't help but wonder if maybe this hasn't been a contributing factor. For when a kid in Sunday school realizes he can simply raise his hand and say Jesus to just about any question that's being asked and it be considered right, I don't think such a faith will serve them very far in life. And such a kid will eventually grow up and realize that our faith does nothing but offer cute but certain answers And doesn't make room for all that much more. I think we ultimately need to be okay with a faith that's a little less exacting and a little less precise. And that's why Jesus was happy to speak to the masses with the uncertain language of parables. And the Lord was often vague about the fact that he was about to be crucified and resurrected. The apostles didn't understand the death and resurrection of Christ until the thing actually happened. Even though Jesus talked about it, it just kind of flew over their heads. And they were like, Lord, what are you talking about? <laughs> and even the second coming of Christ, an event that's supposed to be huge to us as Christians and ultimately even the world, is ultimately something that was shrouded in mystery as well when you look at the Gospels. We are told for certain that the second coming is going to happen, just as Moses was told for certain that he's going to come back and worship God at this mountain with the people of Israel one day. But we are told about the second coming of Christ. Hey, it's going to happen, but nobody knows the day or the hour. So don't be deceived when people come to you with certain answers about the day and the hour or, hey, he's out here or he's out there. Or somebody comes along and says, I am the Christ. Jesus is like, you know, that certainty that you're looking for regarding those things. That's something I'm not going to give you. So beware of the person who gives you nothing but certainty. I think as an evangelical, speaking as one, in our evangelical culture, we'll emphasize things like relationship over religion, Yet ironically, totally unaware of the ironic aspect of it, we present Christ and the gospel message in such a formulaic way that we betray the very thing we say. Because to us, getting the formula exactly right, just like the Catholics do with the the sacraments, we do with the presentation of the gospel, we're so convinced that if we just say the magic formula that we'll get the gospel right, But in truth, by trying to say, well, we value relationship over religion and then presenting the gospel in such a a magical formula sort of way, we ultimately betray the very thing that we're saying. Don't get me wrong. I love the doctrines of justification by faith, and I believe in the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. You don't know what those things are? Look them up. (laughs) I'll probably talk about them at another time, but, you know... I've noticed there's this, this way of presenting the gospel that exists in evangelical circles. that, But we're happy to think if we simply explain the theological mechanics of salvation in the gospel message, if we simply present the doctrine of justification by faith, if we simply present the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, and we explain exactly how the clock ticks and how the gospel works, we think we have preached the gospel But you know, that sort of mindset that if we just simply present these doctrines and explain the mechanics of the gospel and take the Romans road and four spiritual laws and and all those sort of things, we think that that has presented the gospel to somebody when in truth, it just explains the mechanics. It no more brings you into a saving relationship with Christ than sex ed does to introduce you to your spouse. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe that's a little crass for some of you, but think about it. You know, we we go through sex ed at one point, especially here in America, if you go through the public school system or any school system, eventually you're going to learn about the birds and the bees. But learning about the birds and the bees is not the same thing as falling in love with somebody and making love to them. Is it? We present, we, we present the gospel in such a way. We, we preach the gospel in such a way that we simply sit there and think, if we explain the mechanics of it all, it's one and the same. And you may somehow get around to preaching the gospel in the presentation of such things. But we've confused explain the mechanics of how the clock ticks for actually reading the clock itself. And in the Pentecostal tradition that I'm also from, you know, If if I could speak to my people, uh, (laughs) my Pentecostal people. I went to a Pentecostal Bible college. I don't go to a Pentecostal church right now. I go to an evangelical church. Um, Oh, there is some historical overlap there, but I digress. Um, But in the Pentecostal tradition I'm from, we talk a lot about the certainty of when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you know that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because sometimes you're wanting to get full of the Spirit of God. You're seeking God. You're seeking this experience. You're, you're seeking this baptism of the Spirit. You're seeking this post-conversion experience with God in which God fills you with His Spirit and you're overflowing with the Spirit. And we're like, well, how do you know that's happened? And then, of course, we created a doctrine from that that says we can explain exactly how you know that's happened. How can you know that the Spirit of God has filled you? Well, we say, well, you can know that you are filled with the Spirit of God through the initial evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives you utterance. And we codify that doctrine to say, well, that is the evidence. And then we have this obsession from there on out where everything about our faith and regard to the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the explanation of the speaking of in tongues being the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not willing to accept anything else because we need the exactitude. Never mind the scriptures actually never teach such a doctrine. But the early early studiers of this, and thinkers and theologians of the Pentecostal faith, well-meaning as they were, they wanted to determine what the exact nature of this baptism was and how they could know that you know that you know that you got it. Well, you know that you know that you got it because you speak in other tongues. (laughs) Instead of saying, well, maybe you just have faith that you've received this experience. And that by faith, you know that you have the fullness of the Spirit of God. Instead of of, uh, just accepting it by faith, that you have received it and experienced it. We insist in, instead on a mechanical explanation, and that is, well, we know you've received it because in a scientific way we can verify these things, just like we can verify things with the ticking of a clock. We must insist, we say, on something certain instead of allowing for the mystery and uncertainty that is surrounded with true faith. The certainty we are ultimately after, I believe, when it comes to to matters of faith these days is simply this enlightenment sense of trying to understand the world and we import that to our faith. Where the world is one giant clock whose mechanics we just have to understand. We do this with God. We do this with our faith. And we are always treating God like he's just some giant clock that we have to figure out. We preach the gospel in the same way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Unfortunately, we have started putting the cart before the horse, and we are attempting to build our faith on certainty first, of knowing that we know that we know that we know so that we can believe, instead of following the, the idea of Augustine and having faith first, so then we can understand maybe with all this deconstructing of the christian faith stuff that is happening lately i think i think some of that we have some of what we've seen in a lot of these like evangelical type circles and people who are deconstructing is that we tried to present them with this mechanical faith and these mechanical doctrines that tried to explain the world in an exactitude and they started looking at our faith And started saying, no, I don't think it's quite that. And as a result, they go looking for something, still with that mindset, by the way. Something they've never divorced themselves truly from. And they start going out there and looking for something. And I think often never finding it. Because we still go out there with that same mindset. We're trying to fill a bucket that has a hole in it at the end of the day. We want the bucket full. But that's not what God offers us. Instead, God offers us a faith that's a little less certain, a faith that can tell Moses, this shall be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. It's not exactly a very certain faith. It's a faith that is ultimately future-oriented. A faith that entertains mystery. A faith that entertains ambiguity. A faith that's not quite so mechanical. A faith that's a little less certain. Everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, JimmyStable.com, episode 148, An Uncertain Faith. If you've enjoyed this episode, Email me, jimmy at com. I'd love your feedback. And if you have yet to subscribe to the jimmystable.com podcast, I encourage you to go to jimmystable.com slash subscribe and find your favorite way of subscribing, whether it's through Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any of the other different ways you can listen to this podcast on a podcasting app, or you can even sign up for a weekly newsletter, an old-fashioned way, in which you'll get a weekly update by email. Um, about when the latest podcast comes out, which is typically almost every Sunday about 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Everybody, and if you haven't had the opportunity yet, if you want to help people be certain that they can listen to this podcast and that it's going to be a great podcast for them to listen to, I encourage you to go leave your glowing five-star absolutely certain review that this is the most wonderful podcast you've ever listened to over at places like Apple and Spotify so people can know Instead of having to blindly click in faith that <laughs> this podcast might be so good. Man, I love coming up with different ways to, to, to make fun of me begging for reviews <laughs> uh, on a weekly basis and somehow tying it into the podcast in a almost contradictory, ironic sort of way. But anyway, <laughs> everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, Jimmy's Table.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Take care, everybody. God bless, and have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's so right on, man. You said it all.